Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we are at the penultimate class of another structured study. Uh, we'll finish this uh, structured study of jhana on Saturday with the Simsaka Sutta. Uh, a handful of leaves that puts kind of this whole 33 class uh, structured study in the right context. Tonight's sutta is a brand new sutta that I restored a while ago, but I haven't taught it yet. And it's the Nibbana Sutta and it's Saraputta teaching what it means to be awakened and how to actually accomplish that. It's a it's a powerful sutta in that, and it's another one where you could say it's almost an entire uh, dhamma explanation of the dhamma as long as you understand the foundations that we always talk about. And this follows the Ahara Sutta from Saturday. Um, the Ahara Sutta taught how to feed and starve the hindrances and how to feed and starve the seven factors of awakening. And you'll see in this sutta where Saraputta teaches directly what to do when these things arise. And you'll also notice in this sutta, the sutta that Saraputta begins with reminding us that it is the four foundations of mindfulness that establish jhana practice and that carry us through. Um, and so you might want to listen to this with um, the understanding that this is the first time this sutta has been taught in this manner in 2,600 years. On one occasion, the Venerable Saraputta was staying in Rajagaha in the bamboo forest at the Squirrel Sanctuary. He addressed those gathered to hear his words. Friends, the unbinding, the release, in parentheses my comments, from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths is only pleasant. And it should only be pleasant. Venerable Udayan then asked him, because now, after I say this question, you'll see what Udayan is, is believing his practice is about, which is still prevalent today. Most all of modern Buddhism resolves in one way or another into emptiness or, or nothingness or trying to, trying to transform yourself into a dimension of emptiness or nothing, nothingness by meditating on nothingness. Venerable Udayan then asked him, what is pleasing when nothing is felt, when nothing arises? Udayan doesn't know anything about the four foundations of mindfulness, does he? Saraputta replies, this pure pleasure is found in, in increasing jhana, increasing concentration. This pure pleasure abandons the distraction of grasping after and clinging to feelings and thoughts. It is the recognition of the pure pleasure of concentration that allows us to abandon grasping after feelings and thoughts. So everybody that I've ever taught, I think at one time or another has made, has questioned this. Um, how do I get rid of the monkey mind in, in, in various ways? And this is it. This is deepening your concentration. The problem is for many of us in the beginning, it sounds too damn simple and too damn pat that it has to be my, my mind. I have to be more complicated than, than just concentration. There's gotta be more to this than that. But that's what the Buddha taught. And there's actually less than this than that. It's just this. It's just resting in your mind without a distraction. That's the pure pleasure 
of concentration that Sariputta is talking about here. And he says, this pure pleasure rests only, only in a mind united in its body. There's nowhere else where we can find this pure pleasure of concentration unless we're willing to do this one most sensible thing. Sariputta continues, friend Udayan, these five qualities of a distracted mind arise from grasping after and clinging to sensual pleasures. Remember the Ahara Sutta and all the other suttas on hindrances. Be mindful of abandoning these five aspects of grasping, of distraction, of grasping after and clinging to sensual indulgence. Seeing forms, all physical objects, initiating with self and then moving outwards. That's how we attach ourselves to the world. Seeing those things, any physical form, as enticing, satisfying, and endearing, which only instills grasping after and clinging to, doesn't it? Hearing sounds as enticing, satisfying, and endearing. Smelling aromas as enticing, satisfying, and endearing. Tasting flavors as enticing, satisfying, and endearing. Feeling physical sensations as enticing, satisfying, and endearing. So most people say, well, what's left? Isn't that the whole point of life, to be always grasping after experience? It can be, if that's the purpose you want in your life, to spend whatever time you have grasping after and clinging to stuff. But those of you that are here have probably are here because you found that that's disappointing at best and maddening sometimes, isn't it? Why can't we find any pleasure out there in the world? Well, we can't. Why? Because it's temporary. We can't find ourselves out in the world. We can only find ourselves in a mind united in its body that is not distracted by the things of the world. That is a human being living in the world, but not clinging to the world. That is an awakened, fully mature human being, right? The, 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 the textbook definition of maturity would be someone who understands who they are and no longer wants things to be different, beginning with themselves, right? That's maturity. Most people don't get to that advanced level of maturity that the Buddha teaches and that we practice here. Saraputta continues, whenever grasping after or clinging to sensual pleasure arises independence on any of the senses, meaning the senses are what's driving this. It's independence on these senses that I'm becoming distracted. I need sensual pleasure in this moment in each and every moment of my life. Be mindful when this occurs that this is grasping after or clinging to sensual pleasure the sensuality, right? The Buddha's not saying you did something wrong if you find that you're grasping after stuff or grasping after a fabricated view of yourself and hoping to maintain it in the world because he knows that's the most ordinary way for a human being to live in the world. So why would we judge ourselves? Or why would Saraputta say, recognize that you're clinging to something in the world, go behind a shed and beat your head against it for 10 minutes and then you'll be good to go. No, he says, recognize it. Learn to gain control of your mind and gain control of the choices and your eye making. Just recognize that we're doing this. Now, Saraputta continues, when the wise Dhamma practitioner, having established seclusion, enters and remains in the first jhana, this first jhana is experienced as contentment. Sometimes we use the word rapture here. Contentment born of that very seclusion. It is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. We all do this every time we sit. We did it tonight. We came in from the busy, our busy days. We sat in this nice place. Isn't this really a peaceful place? I mean, it really, I'm just struck by it every time we sit here. It's just, the other place was like that too, but there's something that I think Maddie just being in here all day long mm -hmm. contributes to it. But, um, 
So we all experienced this. We came here, we, our minds began to quiet down, and we, we became at least a little bit more content than we were just before we took that first breath. And as, our, as we began our jhana meditation, we recognized that we were distracted by a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling, meaning an emotion that arose. And we directed our thought away from that and back to our, our breath. And usually we'll be judging, we'll be evaluating this in some way. Am I doing it right? Wrong? It's too long. It's too short. The bulb guy's nuts. Whatever it is, we take another breath and keep uniting our mind and our body. And in so doing, we just establish seclusion and contentment in the first level of jhana. Now, Saraputta says, here, the unskillful Dharma practitioner may become distracted by grasping after and clinging to perceptions of sensuality, which is all that that is, by the way. The only sensuality we think we're having is a perception of it because it's fabricated. Does everybody understand that? It's always clouded by our view if it's rooted in ignorance and it, because there's, a, there's an aspect of grasping after our aversion to it. So it, it always has those characteristics. This is an affliction for this Dahmer practitioner as any, in parentheses, self-created painful thing would be. We do it to ourselves. This is stress. This is dukkha. Then, then Saraputta says, our teacher, Siddhartha Gautama, teaches that any affliction is stressful. Any affliction is dukkha, anything. Anything that is stressful, anything that we attach ourselves to or are averse to is stressful. Knowing this, the wise dollar practitioner abandons the distraction of sensual indulgence and knows through direct experience, where is the direct experience? First on my cushion, how is that direct experience? That's my direct experience of the cessation of sensual indulgence, isn't it? In just that one breath. But that one breath is all that we need to continue to the next breath. And the next breath and the next breath. Uh, Jennifer, we just had a really great talk about how the, how retreats feed Dharma practice, maybe for a short while, maybe for a long while. But it's because we are self-enthused about our Dharma practice and we're more um, readily able to recognize what we're doing off our cushion because we established it on our cushion. But this is Dharma practice. And they know through direct experience the pure pleasure of unbinding from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. Continuing on, the wise Dharma practitioner enters and remains in the second jhana, which is the stilling of directed thought and evaluation. Our jhana session has deepened, and we might have taken just two or three or four breaths without recognizing that we're caught up on our thoughts. That's the second level of jhana, and it's not to be discounted or dismissed because it, it might not have been long enough. Because if you're saying, well, it was only for two or three breaths, what are you doing? You've fallen out of the second level of jhana back into the first. You're evaluating. And when you find yourself do it, doing that, take a breath. And as you continue to do that, you will move into the third jhana, the first. Saraputta says, this second jhana is experienced. Oh, slaka plumka. Welcome back, Slob. Slob, could you um, mute your mic, please? Thank you. Um, 
The second jhana is experienced as contentment and pleasure born of concentration, free of directed thought and evaluation. Now the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. And it's a very peaceful and gentle joy, isn't it? It's not some excitable and agitating joy, which often joy is when you look at it that way. It's just the peace and calm and the joy of concentration. And what could be more joyful for a human being than to be in complete control of their mind moment by moment? That's also awakening. It's also full human maturity, isn't it? Why wouldn't a mature human being, if described as mature, have control of their mind? And if not, I don't think it can describe a human being as mature if they don't, right? At least that's my argument. Here, the unskillful Dhamma practitioner may become distracted by grasping after or clinging to directed thought and evaluation. This is an affliction for this Dhamma practitioner as any self-inflicted painful thing would be. Again, if we become distracted in our meditation practice now at this level, it's another painful thing. It's to be recognized that we're doing it. And what is the resolution? Continue practicing. As Saraputta says, continuing, the wise Dhamma practitioner enter, enters and remains the, into the third jhana, which is, a, excuse me, experiencing as the fading of contentment and the pleasure of a mind united with its body, equanimous and supple, a pleasant abiding. And again, notice Saraputta or the Buddha never says in this last for 10 minutes or 10 days. All he says is recognize that you're having the experience and acknowledge what it is. It's deepening jhana. And this is the third level of jhana. And as the fading of contentment doesn't mean that our Dhamma practice has now be, or our meditation practice has now become miserable. It simply means that that reference to contentment is no longer part of our quality of our mind. It's no longer necessary there. Our <coughs> minds have become concentrated past the point of even recognizing contentment. And now our minds are just economists resting in this, in this moment. That is the third jhana. Every one of us has experienced it every, every meditation session we have, whether we've experienced it or not. It likely didn't last too long for, for those of us that are beginners or even later on. But again, the Buddha doesn't say if you've been meditating for five years and the third level of jhana is not for 15 minutes or you're a loser, it would be a pretty mean practice, wouldn't it be? And of course, the Buddha and Saraputta and no, no teachers that I know of, including us here, would ever say that because it's not important. It has no bearing on whether your, your potential for awakening is present here or now. What, what does have bearing is just what the sutta teaches us and what many others does do. Just continue. And then Saraputta again gives the, the description of someone who's not practicing correctly. Here, the unskillful Dharma practitioner, meaning they haven't developed the skills as taught, here the unskillful Dharma practitioner may become distracted by grasping after or clinging to contentment. Meaning my jhana practice has to be described in one way, it has to be content. This is an affliction for this Dharma practitioner as any self-created painful thing would be, insisting that my jhana practice contains something other than just deepening concentration, such as a generalized and impermanent feeling that I describe as contentment. Continuing further, the wise Dharma practitioner enters or remains in the fourth jhana. Just as other unskillful mental qualities arise and pass away, 
grasping after or clinging to pleasure and pain fade away as our jhana practice deepens. Now, this dharma practitioner rests in pure equanimity and refined mindfulness. Here, the unskillful dharma practitioner, so an unskillful dharma practitioner can experience all three levels of jhana, but they're missing something, aren't they? Here, the unskillful dharma practitioner may become, by, be, may become distracted by grasping after or clinging to equanimity. Now clinging to this deepening calm. And why is that an interruption in dollar practice? Because whatever we cling to, we stop at. It's a literal stop sign that we're putting in our dollar practice saying, okay, I found what I want and I'm going to hold on to it. And every meditation session after that, once as long as that is held in mind, is going to be expecting a certain feeling rather than jhana practice, which is recognizing the an equanimous mind that is supple and adapts to every change in thought and everything that occurs. So does the suppleness, the acceptance, our understanding of impermanence? Yes. Thank you, David. David said that the suppleness is our acceptance of impermanence. And that, again, that's what leads to a supple mind. Just think about that. And this is our mind we're talking about. We're, we're, we're building this quality in our own minds. It's not something that's given to us. You know, you don't, it's not bestowed on you because you're you're just a really good Dharma practitioner and you trust in the Buddha or John Haspel. It's through your own direct practice. And again, we talk about that over and over again. That's what this sutta is about specifically. This is how you do it and this is how you don't do it. And so even rather accomplished Dharma practitioners can get stuck if we start grasping after and clinging to experience in our Dharma practice. Excuse me. At any point, we remind ourselves that if we've achieved something in Dharma practice that we start identifying with as me or mine, we've literally lost our minds in our Dharma practice. And I'm using a, um, a strong phrase just to make the point. We're not going to end up in an asylum because of this. Most of us won't. Uh, I mind at this point. But in, the, in, in what we're looking to develop, a calm and peaceful mind, we have lost our way. In that one moment, in that breath, but continued Dhamma practice will always bring us back, at least always bring us back to the opportunity to awaken, as the Buddha has taught many times in maybe about seven years. It might take six or five or four or three or two or even one week. It's up to us. Let me read this again. Here the unskillful Dhamma practitioner may become distracted by grasping after or clinging to equanimity and refined mindfulness. This is an affliction for this dollar practitioner as any self-created painful thing would be. Continuing further, the wise dollar practitioner abandons grasping after or clinging to the perception of various forms, right? Whatever, whatever that, the various forms would be this form here, the form that I might become in the future, whether it's in a future life or something that, you know, that, I'm just the, the, the world's greatest dollar practitioner, so Lord Buddha is going to bestow a pile of gold on me. All of these are becoming forms other than what the human form is, as taught in the Dr. Bhubanga Sutta, a six-property person. This wise dollar practitioner abandons grasping after or clinging to name and form, Nama Rupa, which means self-identification or self-referential views, and grasping after and clinging to all fabricated excuse me, fabricated realm. This glass of pizza. 
Um, so this is a, what we're going to be referring to here. Again, this is from 2,600 years ago, is again, the most common forms of modern Buddhist and spiritual practice. Grasping after the perception of infinite space. That was really my first introduction to what I thought Buddhism was. And wouldn't it be cool, because I thought this is what you, you got if you were really good, was you could bilocate and fly all over the cosmos and go into all these different dimensions that I was reading about. Grasping after or clinging to the perception of infinite consciousness. Grasping after or clinging to the perception of nothingness or emptiness or annihilation, which is what most of modern Buddhism resolves there. Um, and even some of the more modern, um, I, I don't mean this in a political use of the term, in a more liberal um, mind-only practices that tend to focus on developing a mind of nothingness. It's really hurtful. I, I know I told the story a couple of dozen times about a phone call I got from somebody. I'll have to tell it quickly since I brought it up. Um, this gentleman called me. He was agitated. I could hear it in his voice. And he found me on the web. He never came to class. I thought he might. But I can't really remember the story. He was thinking, he said, I'm 38 years old. I'm living the American dream to live in, in Newtown. Uh, he said, I got you know, the perfect, high, perfect house, perfect family, two cars, two brand new cars, all this stuff. And he said, and I feel like I have nothing in my life. And I knew America already where this was probably going. I said, well, describe your practice. He said, well, for 18 years, I've been sitting twice a day, an hour to a day, uh, focusing on nothingness. And I said, can you remember his name? And I said, we repeat what you said. He says, well, for 18 years, I've been meditating on nothingness. And I could hear over the phone. The light bulb blew up in his head and he understood why he feels like he has nothing because that's what he focused on and whatever we focus on whatever we hold in mind is what we're going to experience in our life even if it's just in a, a metaphorically realistic way what this gentleman developed right he was he was living in the fabrication or the metaphor of his own view of himself even though he was living in the so-called american dream he couldn't see it because he had to live in nothingness this is what these grasping after non-physical forms reduce us to they're, they're, they 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 truly are miserable practices or grasping after or clinging to the perception of neither perception nor non-perception uh nergajana made it made a lifetime meal out of that one thing and he, his basic and i'm not putting him down many people practice him it's just not what the buddha taught and you could boil everything if you ever read nergajana it really twists you up but his whole thing was to think not to think that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught to think what you want to think when you want to think it. Human beings think. That's how we live in the world. Non-human beings, dead human beings, don't think. Human beings think, and we shouldn't be grasping after not thinking. And then Saraputta teaches us. Here, the unskillful Dharma practitioner may become by, distracted by grasping after or clinging to all of those non-physical planes. I don't have to read them. This is an affliction for this Dharma practitioner as any self-created painful thing would be. So any fabrication, including these more magical mystical realms are all fabricated. They're not part of an, of an authentic Dharma practitioner. It's what I was taught for many years and I couldn't understand why, but I did it. Continuing further, the wise Dharma practitioner abandons all fabricated realms. And you could say all fabrications as well. Grasping after and clinging to perceptions 
or self-referential thoughts and feelings. All that fades. So it is by this. Now, this is so important. It is by this reasoning that a pleasant abiding is known to the wise Dharma practitioner. The reasoning of your own direct experience. In other words, what Sariputta is really saying to a Gayan is all you have to do is be willing to experience it. Let go of what you're holding in mind, your condition aspects, which is what you um, agreed to when you come to Dharma practice, right? If we're coming to Dharma practice, we understand that Dharma practice is recognizing and abandoning ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So we have to be willing, if we're Dharma practitioners, to face the manifestations of that ignorance and do just this. And again, from the Ahara Sutta to this Sutta, the Visnabhana Sutta, this is the practice. It's just recognizing the abandoning. I'm making arising and passing away in these different ways, right? And not in any um, conceptual way, but in this moment, I feel right speech. I, I feel wrong speech arising. And now it's not. Uh-oh. I think I need to get back to Galassos tonight because that be I had one slice today. Or I think I'm going to have a rough meeting tomorrow at work. I'm not at work tomorrow. I'm here having a peaceful evening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of the grasping after and the clinging to that we do is not me and it's not mine. And it should not be a part of my psyche, my, my makeup. I do not want to be that kind of a human being that is always grasping after, always full of greed and always full of aversion. I want this. I don't want that. It is a miserable way of living our lives, isn't it? I know because I've lived it for many, many years. And it wasn't until I came to this Dhamma that I was able to, little by little, get rid of a little bit at a time, a little bit of that miserableness or the root of that word, miserliness. There we have kind of garbled that word, miserliness, which is another word for, for greed, isn't it? Miserliness, greed is a miserable way to live. No matter how successful we might be, and I won't point anybody out, but we all know very wealthy people. I know wealthy people are very, very happy and content. But we all know people that we could say, boy, that's, it doesn't get better than that. And they're miserable. I used to have a lot of customers. You know, I was fortunate that I did some kind of high-end work for very wealthy people. And many of them were very friendly. But it, it was surprising to me how many were just so miserable in their lives. And you know, I, I felt like telling them, I said, please, don't you know what you're living? You're living this great thing. Thank God. It doesn't work that way, though. Right? We can't tell others. We can't tell others how to live their lives, especially if we haven't figured it out yet, too. And once we do, then we're just examples of, of this, of a calm and peaceful human being. And that's how. The bigger the house that, that I walk into, uh, I recognize right away that it's. It's important. It can be. You know, we happen to know somebody who might fit into that, and he's nothing like that. He's not owned by his money. Right. Um, but many people have. I still think of this job years. This is 30 years ago at least. Um, I was working at it because the town doesn't matter. It's one of the most wealthiest towns in New Jersey, which means one of the most wealthiest towns in the world. And uh, it was the hottest day of August. It was a ripoff. We were, we were taking a roof off, which is the hottest thing you can do. And one of my guys went down at like 10 o'clock in the morning and turned on the faucet to get a drink out of the, the hose. 
And the owner of the house went down in the basement and turned the faucet over. I, and I, I almost felt like pulling the guys, but then I thought, well, it's not in the contract that they got to give us water. So, uh -huh. you know, and I, I kind of, uh, I was still in putting things in people's faces those days. So I bought a big, giant orange, Home Depot, I think, orange water container, put it right by the front door. <laughs> it probably wasn't the best resolution of that, but that's what I did. That got him. What's that? That got him. That got him. Oh, it got him. <laughs> I, I, I probably, well, I probably wouldn't do it today, but um, all right, let's go online. I want to, I want to hear what, what, uh, who should I go to first? Let's go with ladies first. Hello, Jane. Hi, John. How are you? Thank you. If, you, if, if you're not, um, uh, what's the right word? Unkempt or unclothed? Would you mind coming? <laughs> well, gee, all right. Yeah, could you if please you come all, all please, Kevin, come if on. If you insist. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, you know, I'm always very conscious that I don't want to attach myself to my practice. Like, I don't want to make it something it's not. Like, you know, I'm, I just want to keep it very pure. What I call pure is that, you know, my mind and body are united and I'm following the Four Noble Truths and not make it any more than that or any yeah. less than that, but I don't want to get hung up on the idea that, you know, I'm a practitioner and you know, I just, I just want to keep it very pure. Yeah. Does that make any and, sense? I'm sorry, Jane, please go ahead. No, I said, does that make sense? It makes sense. I was going to ask you and you understood that on the first retreat, I think. Yeah. You may not have fully experienced it yet, but you understood that part of the practice. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. That you first retreat is very important. Yeah. For me too. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Hello, Dhamma teacher, Brian. Hi there. Um, I guess, I guess what came through for me on this one is that regardless of whether you're on your cushion or off your cushion, you are just a reference point to what's occurring. Yeah. And you're not you're not attaching or clinging to anything. You're just experiencing what's what's occurring, and that's it. Yeah. And when you can apply that, you know, the world's in a kind of crazy place right now. But we don't have to be a part of it. We recognize it. And we you know do the things that we should be doing. But that, that's as far as that goes. And, you know, we we live calm and peaceful lives. So thank you, Brian. My friend Slav, how are you? Uh, doing good. <laughs> Um, it's very interesting sutra, I mean, obviously, and I kind of relate to some parts um, about unskillful practitioner, because I remember <clears throat> I was so attached to uh, deep jhana meditation because it's so enjoyable, and if I not uh, got same meditation next day, I got so frustrated. It's interesting. And also, you know, you was mentioned uh, about losers. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not mine to be losers. It's important. Well, to... I, said, I didn't hear that. Uh, you was mentioned about losers. I said, you yeah. know what? I'm not mine to be losers. It depends what I lose. I want to lose my fabrication. I want to lose my perception of who I am. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good loss, though. That's yeah, an I think it's very good losers. Thank yeah. you, John. <laughs> Thanks, love. 
How are you, Jeff? Better if I could get it unmuted, John. There you are. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a beautiful, simple, uh, kind of elegant thing that you've restored here. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll, re I'll, I'll leave it at that and remain silent. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. I'm glad you joined us tonight. I'm a teacher, Kevin. Hey, John. Thanks very much for presenting this, Suta. I think I, I like what everybody said. This sort of um, brings it back to the personal nature of suffering and, you know, the, the work that we have to keep continuing to do in our own practice. And uh, I think it was very timely. So thanks for putting this together again. Thank you, Kevin. And thanks for driving me around all day today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to shoot the camera that way, if that's okay. Mary Beth, you don't mind? Yeah. Jennifer, you don't mind? Brett, you don't mind? I care about Brett. You go on. Hello, Jennifer. I think I got you. Man. There you are. Hello. Um, my takeaway tonight is the thing that I have to work the hardest on is not worrying, you know, about anything. Yeah. I'm just I'm a worrier, so I worry about pretty much everything. And um, and realizing that I just don't have to. Yeah. It, it's still I'm still in the aha moment of that. Yeah. Almost a necessary part of life that you know in order to get through you gotta worry about the next thing. Yeah, yeah. you know, and um, you know, and I just got I just And that's the that's the fruits of your practice, you know. You're, yeah. you know, you're doing that, yeah. and it's it's important to recognize it as you're doing it too. Yeah. The benefits yeah. of it. And it is for most people. It's incremental because we're deconditioning a conditioned mind, yeah. and it does take a while to kind of unravel that. But all of that is nothing. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Buddha would say it's like it seems so solid, but it all of that is just an idea we have in our heads about ourselves. And what's an idea? You know, once you let go of it. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, and it works. Thank you, Jennifer. Mary Beth. There you are. Get your head. There you are. I'm glad you're here. Hello, Brett. Hello. Um, I, it, it's kind of a simple suit. I feel that. Yeah. Are you? Do you feel as if you're suffering? And then if you ask yourself that question, are you, are you suffering from anything? What are you holding in mind? Yeah. And I think, uh, That's right. Yeah. And I, I've had weekends where I will we'll be talking about things with my girlfriend, and, and the next day I say, you know what, we're, we're usually pretty good about this, but then, you know, let's work on right speech a little bit because that's just, you know, some things you say that just. You'd say that to, to Aaron and she, really? 
Oh yeah. Oh great. Because <clears throat> like I can sense these things pretty easily. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's great palm practice. Man. Yeah, so you can I can I know when the stuff comes up and you know it's just it's unnecessary, it's unskillful. It's like watching a bad thing on Netflix. It's like they have these horrible programs now that anybody can watch and it's like all right, let me watch that. Uh, why are you watching this? You know? Really? Oh, I don't want to get into what it's like. What it, <laughs> horrible stuff right there is on it? Netflix. Stuff about stalkers, whatever. And uh, it's just like I watched for two seconds. I think I don't watch this. This is horrible. <laughs> this is hard. It shouldn't be on TV. Well, TV um, shouldn't be on TV. They made me emperor the world. But yeah, I mean, so it's what are you holding in mind and how are you participating in, in, in life? Conditioned to blame worldly conditions or stuff that happened in the past, but no matter mm -hmm. what it is, everything that's ever happened to me is represented right here, right now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The same is true for all of you. It just depends on the quality of our minds. It's, it's just that. Thank you. Dhamma teacher David. John. Here on this sutta, and I guess every sutta experience I have now is the joyful engagement yeah. and the joyful engagements that the scene can't just be seen yeah. and the attachment <laughs> causes suffering so you can cognize and just let it be yeah. and that's the joyful engagement that's not clinging to anything and there's an ease to that. There's a calm to that. And that's all my expectations are now. So thank you for this. Thank you, David. It was worth the price of admission? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dala, teacher, Matt. Hey, John. Thank you for this teaching. Um, will you read the last paragraph of that? Yeah, I'd love to. So it is by this reasoning that a pleasant unbinding is known known to the wise Dhamma practitioner. So that is like it, it points directly to 
as you've said, are the direct experience of our practice. It points directly to <clears throat> the fourth foundation of mindfulness, you know, becoming aware of the quality of our mind. And when we keep practicing those four foundations of mindfulness, we get that yeah. last line it's through this reasoning. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's that's right. That was that was excellent. And it's it is the most reasonable thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and to use our reasoning that we're designed to do. Or as human beings, we have these incredible minds. I mean, look at what we as human beings, what we've done with our minds. A lot of great things, a lot of horrible things. We're human beings. But if we could do some of those things that we've done, these incredible accomplishments, we should be able to apply it to ourselves, shouldn't we? And build a, 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 a well-concentrated mind. It's peaceful. It's up to us. And it's not that hard. You know, as Matt just said, it really just comes back down to these four foundations of mindfulness, developing concentration so that you can use that concentration to hold these other seven um, factors, you know, concepts, whatever you want to call them, to hold them in mind, which just form a view of what's occurring in this moment, all of that. And so you can boil that all down to saying in this moment, I'm resting in right view, the same thing. That was a pretty good right view this part. Thank you. All right. Any other questions or comments? Thank you all for an excellent class. We'll finish this, um, this structured study um, Saturday with the Samsapa Sutta. Um, and then next, today's, next Tuesday, we're going to start a, we'll conclude the, uh, our year, uh, a structured study on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is uh I'm really excited about it, but I always am. And it, it's a, the, the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path will be taught over the next 14 weeks in a, a rather unique way. Each, each aspect of the Four Noble Truths will have its own sutta, and each aspect of the Eightfold Path will have its own related sutta. I think you're going to find it very helpful and interesting. Yeah, question about that. Sure. Um, so, um, you're not doing the same thing on Tuesday and Saturday. So when you say you're going to go through that, oh, yeah. right? So like, yeah, one will be a class on Tuesday, the next class is Saturday, the following yeah. day. So, and I can it, listen. I yeah, can that's what I was going to say. So, yeah, I'm hoping that people will pick it up the Tuesday. So, can you do that? Is that? No, I'm just, just, I'm just thinking. Is, is it asking? Am I putting too much on you as a student to expect you to come to class and? find the time to listen to another class. I mean, you've made it easy as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I oh, okay. listen to podcasts. I'm cleaning at my job. I listen while I'm driving in my car. Oh, I listen okay. to the same ones over 10 times. If I can't really? find one when I'm driving. You don't get tired of this voice. I can't stand it. It's so hard to edit. I can't <laughs> stand it. You know, yeah. How can anybody listen, listen to that? Yeah. 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 No, I, I clean. You know, my customers are home, but they're in my offices or whatever. So, okay. I feel it's more on me to get into the practice of like you. It's right there on the podcast. I didn't know until the retreat weekend, but it's you've made it very easy. Yeah, good. I mean, well, I, that was really why I was asking you, Mary. Thank you, and Jennifer. Thanks for the feedback. It's, it doesn't do me to put 
expectations on students that they just can't meet because we're so busy. So thank you for I mean, I, and again, I, I don't think anybody should be able to find a couple hours of spare time in a week, but some people feel they can't. So. All right, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. So these are the Buddhist words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later improve. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jane. See you all. Bye. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.